0: Hey, mama. All right, we got it, cheer.
1: And welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was Clarence Gatemouth-Brown and Funky Mammoth. And that's because I've got Joe Jammer, guitarist and songwriter here, and he's featured on so much fantastic material that we'll be covering today. Huge welcome, Joe.
2: Thank you, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here
1: with you. Before we get into Clarence Gatemouth-Brown, maybe it's worth talking about how you got into music. And you're known as Joe Jammer, but your real name is Joseph Wright.
2: Joseph Edward William Wright second.
1: How did you get the name Joe Gemma?
2: Well, I started playing the drums as a drum student when I was eight years old. I went into a hospital with a bad uh, rheumatic fever, heart condition at nine, and then came out. And somehow, for some reason, I I, I jumped over to to the guitar. Now, that was about 1960. So I really, the only thing I was into then was kind of like surf music, even though Chicago isn't exactly a surf town. Mm. And then I did seven years of private lessons. And while I did those private lessons once a week, all of that explosion of pop music from England came over and blew my mind. Now, I'm from the south side of Chicago, and that's like one mile away from the black south side of Chicago. But because of the racial separation, I didn't even know that great wealth of, of music was two three miles away from my mother's house. I heard all of this stuff coming out of England and uh, hit the Beatles and the Stones, and I didn't really know about the black roots from Chicago yet. Yeah. I actually had to come to England when Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin uh, invited me to come to London. I was a roadie for Zeppelin when I was 18, a roadie for The Who at 17, and a roadie for Jimi Hendrix at 16, all in North America, because I wanted to make some kind of connection. Everything was coming out of England. Ultimately, Jimmy Page said, you want to be a professional musician full-time? Well, we can't help you here, really. Come to England, and uh, Peter Grant will manage you imagine that. (laughs) And Mickey Most became my producer, just like that. Boom. Mickey Most, uh, he was like the producer of Donovan and and the Hermits Hermits. And that was all to me. I'm buying the records. And suddenly I'm I'm in the middle of these people. So I think it was because when I was writing for Zeppelin, Jimmy Page was not available all the time uh, for his own sound checks for obvious reasons. So I was like an understudy. I would play his guitar for him and they would always find me jamming for the uh, backup bands, it would open for Zeppelin. So when Zeppelin would come to play their show, I'm on stage with whoever was opening for them. Uh, every city we were in at the night after the gig, I would find out what city had live music. And I used my Zeppelin credentials to get in and jam with these people. So it became kind of an insult. I was called the Jammer. <laughs> Where's that bloody Jammer? The summer of 69. But they were so good to me, Jason. So Jimmy Page gave me that nickname. Robert Plant says he did. Um, But I think it was Jimmy. And then when I came to London in uh, November 15th, 1969, that's when I was introduced to Mickey Most. He said, "Uh, you got a name for your band? And I said, yeah, I was going to call it Pack Rat. And he goes, no, no, Pack Rat. No, no, that's not good. That's not good. Don't you have a nickname? And I went, well, yeah, but it's kind of an insult. He says, well, what's your nickname? Joe Jammer. He goes, well, that's the name of your band. (laughs) I said, yeah, but I'm not the lead singer. And he goes, it doesn't matter. The band is called Joe Jammer. It's a generic name that just happens to be your name. (laughs) So the name stuck. From that moment on, I was Joe Jammer, and the band was Joe Jammer, and that was it.
1: We'll be coming back to your solo work, including your early solo work, a bit later in the show. Let's reconnect with the opening track, which is Clarence Gatemouth Brown and Funky Mama. Clarence Brown, a, a figure associated with blues element but actually very big in Europe
2: yep well he came from Texas and the reason that I ended up with him and uh, the reason I presented this song to you is because at that period I was doing a lot of blues albums for first of all English producer Mike Vernon yeah and then number two French producer Philippe Rault R-A-U-L-T now, Philippe produced that Clarence Gatemouth Brown album, but I did a Memphis Slim album with him. I did uh, Willie Mabin with him. He brought me to Paris to do TV shows with different people. He was a friend of Eddie Barclay's from Barclay Records in Paris. So the Clarence Gatemouth Brown uh, Funky Mama was a, a great experiment for me. As you can hear, it's kind of a goofy little thing, really, almost like nursery rhyme type uh, guitar parts with double and triple tracks and stuff. So that just uh, was an example of that early um, adventuring. I think we did it in a place called Le Chateau, just outside of Paris, right near uh, the cemetery where Vincent Van Gogh and his brother Theo are buried. So that kind of starts it off. And I did a million sessions in the 72 And I thought that actual track was kind of significant of all those blues records that I did in those early 70s.
1: We opened with one of those sessions and we go from a, a similar period to one of the greats who's now sadly passed away, Jerry Lee Lewis and High School Confidential into the early 70s. Around that period, his label got him over to London to work with some fantastic guitarists and musicians, including yourself.
2: Well, I was definitely the low man on that totem pole, but thank you very much for the compliment. At that time, Jerry Lee Lewis came over to do that album. All of the the big shots, Bo Diddley did it, uh, Muddy Waters did it. They all had their London sessions. Howlin' Wolf did it. And I got involved with the Jerry Lee Lewis session because of the record uh, executive from Mercury Records, Robin McBride. And he got me that session, you know, again, it's all about people calling you up and saying, Hey, I need you down here. And he was a friend from Chicago. I did my first ever professional recording session for him when I was 16 years old, way before Zeppelin and The Who and Hendrix. So he was a, a bit of a mentor. So I'm already in London now, thanks to Zeppelin and tooling around doing all of these wonderful sessions. And he calls me up and says, I want you to be on this Jerry Lee Lewis album. So those were you'd have like three drummers, four bass players, five guitar players, three piano players, all at the same time. It was the who's who of all the great rockers at that time on that very song, uh High School Confidential. Everybody's on it except Jerry Lee Lewis, by the way, if you've noticed. Mm-hmm. And and the reason that happened, uh, Jerry Lee, he didn't like us because we had long hair. And he he was very bigoted. You know, he was a Southern boy in the the good old days. So I don't want to tell you what he called us, but it was very derogatory Mm -hmm. all the time for a week or two weeks. Now, he came in with a case of Jack Daniels whiskey. That's a lot of that's 12 bottles. And we thought maybe eight bottles. And we thought, all right, he's going to everyone's going to have a little sip. He drank all of that Jack Daniels himself. So he was so drunk. God bless him. That by the time, uh, you know, the afternoon came, he was unable to play well. So he was always making mistakes and he'd blame the drummer and he'd blame me and he'd blame the bass player. And those are all English musicians, bro. They would not put up with it. I'm from Chicago. To me, that's like normal. So the bass player, Johnny Gustafson, who ended up being my bass player on the Joe Jammer second solo album, which you have a track from uh, the uh, Headway album with Mitch Mitchell from Jimi Hendrix on drums. This is what made me fall in love with Johnny Gustafson. He used to be in a band called the Big Three out of Liverpool and, they, and the Beatles opened for them. And then I think he was with Roxy Music, too. And, you know, he was a session guy. Yeah,
1: quite a mass, I think.
2: Yes, sir. So that's why I put him in my al- on my album, because he's the one that spoke up to Jerry Lee Lewis, swore back at him. Hey, MF, it's you that's making all the mistakes. Now get sober or figure something out. Jerry Lee Lewis got up off his piano, walked over to Johnny Gustafson, punched him in the face and knocked him out unconscious right on the floor of the studio. The bass is plugged in, you know, this it's going pow, 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 pow. All of the English musicians, after being abused by him verbally for about three or four days, just got up and walked out. I really didn't know anybody. So I am the I knew the producer, you know, so I'm sitting there. I'm the only one left in the studio with Jerry Lee Lewis. And he's looking at me like, what are you looking at? And I looked at Robin McBride in the control room and I'm going, eh, okay. So they had to send Jerry away to sober up. And while that happened, that's when we did. That version of High School Confidential. And Peter Frampton and I did like a call and response the uh, meaning that was a real jam thing in those days. So I was always jamming all the time. And, the, and then they decided to put me with Peter Frampton and we would he would like play a it's like a jazz thing, really. He would play a lick, then I would play a lick. And, and you can hear it on, on the record. So that's why we did high school confidential without Jerry Lee Lewis.
1: Another great session here. We've got Steelers Wheel. Nothing's going to make me change my mind from their album, Fergus Lee Park. So this was a period in Steelers Wheel where Jerry Rafferty and, and Joe Egan were pairing things back and then bringing in additional musicians to compliment them, including yourself.
2: Well, I think it was because they brought in the producer or maybe he. I don't know the background of it. Again, I just got a phone call and I don't even remember who from. But you see, Zeppelin, Peter Grant and Mickey Most and Richard Cole, the tour manager, and even Jimmy Page, they would throw me at things. I was supposed to replace Eric Clapton when Cream broke up with uh, Jack Bruce and and Ginger Baker. And I went over to meet Robert Stigwood to be interviewed. And uh, he chased me around his desk for a couple hours and I wouldn't let him catch up with me. And I, so I didn't get the gig. But uh, another gig they gave me was Screaming Lord Such. I did the uh, the live British tour of Lord Such and his heavy friends. So I think Steeler's Wheel might have come through the Zeppelin people, too. I don't remember, bro. It was, there was so much going on. See, when Jimmy Page gave me his advice, he said, look, I can only help you to do what I did. And he said, I think it's smart if you become a session man first, like I was, then the business knows who you are. Before the public, or in, in a failed band, and another failed band, and another failed man. So Jimmy gave me all the sessions that he couldn't do anymore because Zeppelin got so big. And then I jumped into it. So Steelers Wheel was, I think, in the Island Studios, Chris Blackwell studio, I think around Portobello Road area or something. And it was produced by... Lieber Stoller who uh, wrote uh, Jailhouse Rock for Elvis. Yeah. I remember Mike Stoller, but it says Lieber Stoller, but maybe they they had a like a Lennon McCartney even if just Lennon wrote it or McCartney they had a deal. So I was called in as a session man and that album was so important to me because once I got the suggestion from you to pick something from it or whatever I listened to the whole album and excuse me Jason but I did some great guitar work on that. <laughs> and I don't I don't remember because those boys wrote such beautiful pop tunes that were kind of conducive to my style of playing. And their harmonies were so beautiful, their voices together. And Jerry always had a little bit of a John Lennon in him, but without being a John Lennon imitator. Jerry was a big drinker, as you probably know. I'm just so sorry that we lost Jerry. My, My bass player, Lyle Harper, who was the bass player with the Olympic runners for six albums, I uh, was also the bass player when I did that world tour with Maggie Bell and Bad Company. He was the live bass player for Steelers Wheel. So th- again, it was like that incestuous thing with the mm. uh, this whole like this whole gang of people that would s- play with them for a while and play with you for a while. Then I'd play with him for a while. Then they'd play with me for a while.
1: Touching on this near the start of the show, your first album being "Bad News," and we've got the track now, "Missed My Train." Ah, so very interesting things about this album. You were the producer, but the engineer was
2: uh, Alan Parsons, big superstar, but not at that time. I got signed again through Peter Grant and Mickey Most, making some kind of phone call because uh, I was no longer with Mickey Most because he he wanted to turn me into a. It was all about gimmicks. What's your gimmick, mate? What's your gimmick? Mm. What's your gimmick? I fell out with Mickey Peter Grant as was still helping me, and um, the solo deal with EMI was a three-year three-year deal. The first uh, album was done at Abbey Road, double session fee for all the musicians on it. Same thing with the second album, but they allowed me to do that in at Olympic Studios, which became the Headway album, released like forty years later on uh, what was it, Angel Air, I think. And uh, bad news. I had Tony Stevens from Foghat and Savoy Brown, Reggie Isidore from Robin Trower on drums, uh, Jean Roussel from Cat Stevens on keyboard, Chris Mercer on saxophone from uh, Roxy Music and lots of session stuff, and, uh, and uh, Alexis Corner's daughter, Sappho Corner on backup vocals. Mm. I had Johnny Contardo and, uh, and Danny Green from, from uh, background vocals from Sha Na Na, and Johnny Contardo ended up being my lead singer on my second album. Because my vocals were, were were honest and emotional, but technically inferior to what the songs demanded. But "Miss My Train" was written in a, a a London nightclub, two o'clock in the morning, and I think I think there was a groove. The DJ was playing like a song maybe by the the Temptations or something with that cool little bass line, and uh, I I was sad about something. The lyrics, I miss. I think I miss my train. You know. But uh, it was a very beautiful song, I think. So very bluesy. And uh, and that it epitomized all of those people that were on it.
1: I'm wondering if this is the time to ask you about the, the connection that you have with Aerosmith.
2: It's always a good time to talk about Aerosmith. <laughs> I lived with a girl named Alyssa. Alyssa Jurette. She became Joe Perry's wife after she lived with me for three years. I was already living up at 87A Reddington road up in Hampstead where Mickey most put me in this beautiful apartment built and building, uh, living upstairs from me was all the cast of hair with, uh, Tim Curry, Elaine page, and all of these people were, were, were living above me. And, uh, this is where I, where I, I, introduced Peter green to Carlos Santana. Jeff Beck used to hang out there. I, again, I just, what, 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 and then suddenly there's a knock at my door and this little girl says, hi, my name's Alyssa. Maggie Bell, who I didn't really know yet, but she was still also managed by Peter Grant with Stone the Crows and everything. She says, Maggie Bell told me to come and ask for Joe Jammer. And she came in, we shook hands, and she lived with me for three years. Now, in those three years, I found out that she's from Boston, Brookline, Joe Perry, Aerosmith. And they were all playing little pubs and stuff. And I would go home to Chicago every Christmas, and Alyssa would fly in with me. Uh, I'd drop her off in Boston, and then I'd carry on a flight to Chicago, come back to Boston for uh, New Year, New Year's. And then in the summertime, we'd go up to Sunapee, New Hampshire. And that's where uh, Stephen Tyler, whose real name is Stephen Tellerico, would have a little summer house. And Joe Perry's family had a summer house, and Alyssa had a summer house. And we'd be water skiing and stuff. We did a lot of stuff. So Aerosmith, they asked me to join their band. Strangely enough, they had a kind of like something like I almost was with Zeppelin. They had a roadie that played guitar in their band. But Ray was uh, the roadie, and he also played rhythm guitar in Aerosmith. So I don't know why, but I I didn't think he had the same magic as the rest of them. So I said, look, put Ray back on full-time roadieing and uh, get another guitar player. And then Steven Steven, uh, Tyler said, well, how about you? and i had already been living in london now and i'm hanging out with the beatles and the stones and the Zen. so i really didn't want to go to boston and live with these guys but i said look there was a band up in sunapee new hampshire called just in time t y m e and i and i was hanging out there with them on it one summer we used to jam at this place called the barn uh, and it was great fun and i said look he's the one with magic his name is brad whitford Take him out of uh, just in Time, put him in Aerosmith, and you guys will be the American Rolling Stones. They did, and they did very well. Uh, so, uh, so that's my little claim to fame. They're buddies of mine. I don't see them much. I'm over here; they're over there. I was supposed to jam with them here, right when the pandemic came in. I think they're going to do the O2, and they wanted me to come out, come down with my guitar, and we'll do "Train Kept a Rolling" by the Yardbirds or something. And uh, I was ready to do it, bro, but of course. The pandemic fell upon us, and that was it.
0: Let me hear that bass. Yeah.
1: touching upon it before the headway album which was your your next solo album which eventually came out on angel air in, in the past decade we've now got the track it wasn't meant to be maybe it's worth going through the musicians that you were playing with they were top notch
2: yes sir my brother again i was low man on the totem pole and and that's another thing jimmy page taught me he said always play with people better than you always hang out with people bigger than you, but learn from the people that are, you know, so again, EMI owning Abbey road said, okay, Joe, do the second album where you want. And I said, Olympic studios, that's where Zeppelin is. And the stones are, I'm hanging out with Mitch Mitchell. Uh, and that's a cute story because I was a drum roadie for him when Jimi Hendrix played Chicago in 1967. And three, four years later, I'm his guitar player. So by the second album, my voice wasn't good enough for the material I was writing. Brought in Johnny Contardo from Shana Not To Sing Lead, Mitch Mitchell from Jimi Hendrix on drums, Johnny Gustafson on bass, again, Jean Roussel on keyboards. And um, I had a guy named Brother James Fitzroy on percussion. We used to work with Bob Marley and people like that. I always liked my Kungas. I always because I was a big James Brown man. And it was Jimmy Page, he says, look, we're we're happy to help you here, Joe. We're very happy to help you, Joe. But you must understand that we get everything from the Chicago Black musicians. And I went, oh. So then I, I exploded with my visits home to my mom. And I was, I was also running jam sessions at Buddy Guy's Club Checkerboard on the south side of Chicago, where I was the only white boy in the club. I brought Zeppelin in there for the first time ever. And, uh, and then the stones started hanging out and everything like that. So that second album didn't get released because I had a band that I took to Dusseldorf, Germany, to work for the brother of the woman that Jimi Hendrix died in the arms of, Monica danneman And she took a liking to me too, because I was with Mitch Mitchell. And Mitch Mitchell said that I was the most fun guitarist he ever worked with since Jimmy meaning we have a lot of fun, not just very serious. We are artists. Hendrix was a very fun guy.
1: I've read that the reason your second album wasn't released, really, because you got stuck in Chicago, didn't you?
2: Very close. I, I was in Dusseldorf and I took yeah. the band with me that I wanted to promote the first and second album within a UK tour. And we played for Monica Danneman's brother, Peter Danneman's nightclub called Gypsies in Old Dusseldorf. So coming back from Old Dusseldorf, And I went through customs. This is the good old days, baby, when they actually would stop you at at immigration and say, what are you doing here? And I'm afraid I came up short. And all all I had until that moment was nothing but visitor's visas. And I'd I'd been doing like 50 albums, you know? And Peter Grant kept giving me money, sending me down to the home office to get another three months, another six months, another three months. And they never got me a work permit. So finally, immigration... Looked at my phone book and it was full of nothing but musicians and phone numbers. Paul McCartney, Mitch Mitchell, Abbey Road. What are you doing with all this then? Oh, uh, well, I'm uh, independently wealthy. <laughs> and the guy says, "I don't think so." So I was refused entry into the UK for the for for the first and only time in my life. And I had to go to Paris to live with that guy, Philippe Rowe, the French producer who let me stay at his mom and dad's house. Then they took me over to the Montreux Blues and Jazz Festival, where I did uh, all those other albums for Philippe Rowe, what I did uh, for Willie Mabin and, and Clarence Gatemouth Brown and, uh, and uh, Memphis Slim. Then I had to go back to Chicago. And the uh, president of EMI was a Dutchman. He, he replaced Roy Featherstone. And he uh, pretty much ignored me. So the second album was never released. And the third album was never recorded at that time. And it was Mike Vernon from the Olympic runners who got me a work permit. Then I was okay for him. the same guy that would refuse to let me in. He goes, "Oh, you've got papers now, mate. all right, welcome, come on in. <laughs> That's how I got my work permit, thanks to Mike Vernon and then the Olympic
1: runners. And aside. What is your connection with the Rolling Stones album Sticky Fingers?
2: Another good question. Okay, I had my first hookup with the Rolling Stones because everybody had their label. Zeppelin had Swan Song. Everybody had their own label. It was more of a tax dodge than anything. And the Rolling Stones had a guy named Reg King that they were trying to establish as a, as a singer. And I ended up playing on Reg King's album. The Action. Yeah, yeah, he only did one album.
1: It's great, yeah. Reg King.
2: Yeah, sure. And I, and I was very happy to be his guitar player. And we were supposed to go on the road too. I don't know what happened there. I don't remember, but he got me a job. He goes, look, uh, the Stones are playing at the Roundhouse, which was my first time in the Roundhouse, even though I headlined the Roundhouse maybe about a year or two later with the Joe Jammer band. But he said the Stones need a a backstage bodyguard and you're, you're six foot four. You're a big giant. So what you have to do is help make sure that nobody comes backstage. There was like a little trailer off the stage and then you have to walk out of the trailer down a couple of steps. And then across about three or four feet, and then up the steps to the stage. So he goes, I want you to stand here. This was Reg King. I want you to stand here. And when the Stones come out, I think it was Mickey Taylor on guitar. "Uh, Don't let anybody hurt them. I went, okay. So they come out, and I never realized how tiny those guys were. That gave me a a little taste of, of the Stones operation and the Stones thing. And then somewhere, they were recording Sticky Fingers at Olympic. And um, I was with Mike Vernon doing some kind of session for him in Studio 3, and Peter Green, who was Alyssa's friend, when I was, remember I said I introduced Peter Green to Carlos Santana, and that's when Carlos said to Peter Green, I'm happy to meet you. Can I have your permission to record your song, Black Magic Woman? So Peter Green comes to the studio where we are, and Mike Vernon used to produce Peter Green in uh, Fleetwood Mac. Peter Green says, hey, the Stones are next door. Now, listen to this. This is when the Stones were recording, booking Olympic studios for one year. (laughs) This was one of the times when Mick and Keith weren't there. So Peter Green says, everything's set up over there. Charlie's there. Bill Wyman's there. And good old Stu. See you, Stuart was there. Charlie and they need some guitar players. So Mike Vernon said, go ahead. So me and Peter Green went in there and were jammed, jammed with the Stones. And I didn't know about how everybody keeps the the tapes rolling without putting on the red light. Mm. And the Stones were very famous for that. So I didn't know that because I was still naive. And I'm going, wow, I'm here with Peter Green playing with the Stones. And we're jamming away. And then, you know, whatever, a couple of hours, and that was it. So maybe a week later, two weeks, I don't know. I'm walking home. I was in like Cricklewood High Street or something, heading up towards Hampstead, where I was living still. And it was summertime. And you know the record shops would have their little speakers out on the street, and they'd play music. I'm hearing this really funky guitar, you know, and I'm going, "Yeah, that's cool. What's that?" Yeah, 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 and I'm going, "That sounds familiar." And I went, "Wait a minute, that's me!" <laughs> I remember doing that riff, so I went down to the to the music shop, and the guy wouldn't believe me at all. And he goes, yeah, right, mate. Yeah, yeah, that's you on guitar, Rhett. that's right, mate. Yeah, sure, all right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I found out later they edited bits of the jam I did with Peter Green. You can hear the edit on the end when it goes from "Can't you hear me knocking into that jam?" and they added the saxophone and they added. Uh, I think there's some percussion on there too, and uh, never gave us credit. Never gave you know, but I knew it was me. <laughs>
1: Olympic runners now with Do It Over. That's Mike Vernon connection, isn't it?
2: Great story. Again, Mike Vernon. We were doing an album for Jimmy Dawkins, another Chicago blues man. The album Transatlantic 770, which was the flight that you would come over, and I did many times, flying from Chicago to London, Chicagoland. So Jimmy Dawkins comes over to do a blues album, and I'm already working with Tony Stevens and Reg Isidore and Pete Wingfield on keyboards, doing all of Mike Vernon's sessions, because Mike Vernon... And it was so smart of him. He wanted a London version of the Tamla Motown Funk Brothers, the Muscle Shoals rhythm section the Aretha Franklin took on the road with the guys that came out of uh, Atlantic Records in New York. The guys that played for Stax Records, they all had a rhythm section for all their artists. And uh, he wanted a London version. And he picked me to be the guitarist, Tony Stevens on bass, but we would switch. He'd have Philip Chen on bass and he would have... Uh, Pete Wingfield was almost always on keyboard and different drummers. Reggie Isidore was, was the earliest one. So Jimmy Dawkins was late getting to the studio for no reason, just that he was just late. And um, again, Joe jammer, always jamming. And I came up with that little riff that. And then the boys and Tony Stevens put a little bass part and Reggie started doing a little on the drums, Pete Wingfield. And then Mike Vernon in the control room gets on the mic and says, look, look, look. That's a great groove, that's a great funk. I put the the change in it, and then I put the chorus in it. We didn't have any vocals yet. And it was actually originally called honky, a black derogatory term for white people. And then the B-side, and we did like how James Brown always used to do part one and part two, the A-side and the B-side. So we did honky on on side one and honky two, T-O-O, honky two on the B-side. And that was like just a different key and a different speed. And Mike Vernon said, yeah, that's too good, too funky, whatever, for Jimmy Dawkins. We'll keep that for ourselves. Uh, and uh, and he got us a deal with London Records in New York. And uh, he got us this deal, but they didn't like the name Honky for this for the song. So something went wrong when we cut it properly. And I said to Mike, why don't, why don't we just do it over? He goes, that's the title. Do it over. And then he, we needed a name for the band. And we were in Olympic Studios. So it, Mike Vernon came up with the name The Olympic Runners. And then we were just the runners. Now, we were doing funk for the first several albums. But there was a political movement in America where Billboard uh, magazine had the pop charts, which were like white charts, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And then they had the R&B charts, which were the black charts, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And you would see a lot of white artists crossing over to the black charts. But you would not see any black artists crossing over to the white charts. They blacklisted the Olympic runners. Because we made the mistake of on our second or third album, we put the picture of the band on and there was white boys in the band. I thought it was cool. I mean, you know, Sly and the Family Stone was black and white. But at this particular moment, any white artist could not be played on black radio or could be uh, appear in the black charts. So the Olympic Runners as a funk band, which, w- which was called Street Funk at that time. It was like, you know, a little instrumental with a couple of little vocal hooks, which we owe to James Brown anyway they stopped playing our records and that's when david walker and Handel artists came in uh that's how we ended up with the the song the the soundtrack for the bitch the movie with joan collins yeah. he turned the olympic runners into a european disco band <laughs> and then we had about four or five hit records that were on top of the pops all the time doing uh things like keep it up and whatever it takes and so we got an extended life in europe but we were dead in america but we've sold you know for them seven albums We sold about six million records, but the good thing that came out of that, I didn't find out until I came to England many, many years later. You guys have a thing here called whosampled.com, and you just put your name in to see who sampled your music, and the Olympic runners are like the third most sampled band of all time. That's the Olympic runners. We did a one UK tour. We were supposed to do a second one, but the runners were all session men that were making a lot of money doing sessions. But the runners didn't want to make that effort. And that's when I put that band Nobody's Business together.
1: Yeah, with um, Bobby Harrison. Bobby
2: Harrison, God bless him. He just died recently.
1: Yeah, Nobody's Business. But a bit of a super group in a way.
2: Yes, when we did that album that you're talking about, it was uh, my friend from Chicago, Jerry Frank, on drums and vocals. Reggie Isidore had a fight with Tony Stevens backstage in Ibiza uh, when we presented the band with our wonderful management, Julie Enthoven, whose cousin David Enthoven ran Manticore and, and Emerson Lake and Palmer's business. And we went to Berles Alpes in the south of France. Julie Enthoven got us a deal up in the mountains of a brand new studio. Great album. We had Eric Clapton's producer. Chris Kimsey was supposed to produce us, but the Rolling Stones, Mr. Jagger called Chris Kimsey. So we were in good hands. It was a great album. And we did videos, which is something new. We did six videos of six of the songs that we were hoping to be released as future singles. So we were planning ahead. When we did the album in Bear La Alpes, by the time we came back, we were having problems within the band. I knew that it wasn't going to make it. Atlantic Records offered us a $750,000 deal. Julie Enthoven was chasing a million-dollar signing bonus as the first time ever, and I actually called off the band the night before we signed with Atlantic Records because we had Led Zeppelin's blessing. Phil Carson was the president of Atlantic England at the time. He used to come and play bass with me at my Monday night jam sessions at the Speakeasy. We were totally connected, but I knew we were going to replace Bobby. And I knew we were going to replace Tony because there was internal problems. Um, So I said to Julie, I don't want to take uh, this money and run because then I'll ruin. There'll be no future for me. How long am I going to last on whatever my cut is from this? Because the band will break up. And uh, I said to Phil Carson from Atlantic Records, I'm sorry, but I can't take that deal. He was he was gobsmacked. And uh, he said, nobody ever said no to a deal before. I said, yeah, but I know that we're going to break up soon. So he said, whenever you're ready, Joe Jammer, with another band or another project, just let me know. And uh, so nobody's business uh, came and went. But the videos that we did, another historical first and only was um, Sylvia Anderson and her husband, Jerry Anderson, who gave what did they give you? the That wonderful puppet puppet show. Um, our Thunderbirds. Thank you. So Sylvia Anderson directed all our videos. So that, none of that saw the, none of those saw the light of day because we never did any of those singles. So as the years went by, Tony Stevens did a deal with Peter Purnell of Angel Air Records of a first that ever and only. see the album was released in Japan. Now was another first from Julie Antoven, and and Sony Japan was very happy to have to be the first ones to release an album of a new band. They always got it late. They always got it after England, after USA, whatever. So Japan got nobody's business first. It did very well in Japan. We were supposed to go there first.
1: Well let's play nobody's business and bleed me dry. We have another big name. We've got Roger Glover getting stranger from his solo album, Masks. So this is about 1983 now.
2: Yeah, now I'm living in Montreal. I left London in 1979 because the punk movement came and destroyed all of my nightclubs, all of my jamming. And I, I can't live somewhere where I can't jam. I went to France first and I played guitar for a French superstar named Julien Claire who was like a Rod Stewart guy. And I did a two-year French world tour with him from about 79 to 81. So that got me out of London and away from the punk scene. And then I had a jam jam scene going in in Paris, working with Julien. And then the final gig with Julien was in Montreal. And then we we did a beautiful big festival up in Montreal, which is a lot closer to Chicago than Paris. And I still had that little French thing. I I was involved with... uh, Le Studio in Morin Heights in Quebec. Yeah. I did about five to ten albums up there as a session man. Everything I learned in London was brought to Montreal, where I lived for 20 years, doing uh, many albums with many people. So Roger Glover came in to uh, Le Studio. Sting came in to Le Studio. I didn't work with Sting, but Jean Roussel did. That song, Every Little Thing She Does Is Magic, they did up there in, in Le Studio. So I had recording studios. I had jam clubs, but it was just all in French. But it was a lot closer to Chicago because my mother was getting older and Roger Glover showed up and uh, I got the phone call again, probably from Jean Roussel, uh, who did that world tour with Julie and Claire and then uh, several world tours with Robert Charlebois and Diane Dufresne. All of these are French artists that we would have generally never heard of. And Roger Glover shows up and uh, uh, they call me up uh, to play guitar. And that was a lot of fun with him because who was he with, Deep Purple or something? Yes. So, so he came in and, and did a solo album, his first solo album. I was very proud of that. It was, it was keyboard orientated, but there was some nice crunchy guitar on there. Shit, sure. sure. that's the work I did in Montreal leading up to the, the song, which I think you took, which is my, my first ever single, the song called Marie in the Morning.
1: That was recorded in Montreal, but didn't come out until relatively recently.
2: Yeah, again, like, like the second Joe Jammer album. The only girl I ever lived with in Montreal, her name is Marie Obu, but her show business name is Marie Carmen. Marie Carmen, and she's a big superstar. She's like Elaine Page. Uh, a crooner, a heartbreaker, a a torch singer. And we lived together for about three years in Montreal. And I wrote this song for her. And when I was in my studio, which was called Bobina Song in old Montreal, where I did a lot of work for a lot of French Canadian artists, I did like some demos for future songs. And then eventually I, I left Montreal after 20 years. And I took those tapes with me to Chicago and then, then brought him here. And I finished that song. So I had just me on guitar and my vocals, acoustic guitar. And it was the tempo was so good and the vocals were in such good tune that I finished the song here, right now in this room where I'm talking to you, my home studio. Then it was remixed by uh, Benny King, who was an engineer producer for Olympic Studios. He worked with the Stones and the Beatles and the, the Doors, and uh, he did a lot of stuff. And that was released as a single. So here after all of those years uh and I, I my third album had come out at in before Marie in the morning we just jumped ahead a little bit the album called uh Till the End of Time yeah. and that that became my official third album that I never did for EMI back in 1973 74 75
1: So now we've got Monster Raving, Looney Party, Uh-oh song. I guess your connection with Monster Raving, Looney Party, as you were saying before, was Lord Such? Because of that tour that I did for David Such
2: all those years ago, he did an album with Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck and John By, you know, yeah, and Richie Blackmore, maybe all the big heavies that worked with him in his goofy uh, Jack the Ripper days. But again, Peter Grant and Richard Cole said, uh, we got a job for you, Joe. He needs a guitar player for the tour. So go 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 talk to him. So I went down to see Screaming Lord Such, David Such from Harrow on the Hill. I you know I just said yes. You know you just say yes. You know, and so I said to him, you know what what are we? Is it B flat C sharp? Is it rocket? What are we doing? He goes he goes. Never mind all that bollocks, mate. Here's what you gotta do. When I come out on stage, I'll be in a coffin. They're gonna wheel me out in a coffin. A lot of smoke. And you guys are going pow 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 and then they open the coffin. I jump out of the coffin. And then you have to chase me around the stage with a fire extinguisher <laughs> spraying me with foam. And that's all you got to do. I mean, I played guitar for the whole night, but that was the only thing that was important to him. He goes, then you go back to the guitar. And then everything was real easy anyway, like Jerry Lee Lewis type rock and roll. is all dunga, 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 And the gig, that was when I first discovered mods and rockers and teddy boys. And and the, we, the gigs were all like auditoriums with, with fluorescent light bulbs, you know, it was stark and it was great. Cause I was like 18, 19. And uh, he took me under his wing. He took me up to meet his mom. He had a, he had an Elvis Presley uh, Cadillac 1956, big black Cadillac. So then I left, as you know, my story now. So I left England in 79 and David died when I was gone and I come back and I get hooked up again with the Monster Raving Looney Party because I'm the only one left alive <laughs> from those days. And I jumped right in because when I went to my first ever Monster Raving Looney Party conference, I never felt so comfortable with a bunch of people in my life. So I immediately completely adopted them. They adopted me. And uh, then I wrote that song for them, the Monster Monster Raving Looney Party O-O song, because it was originally supposed to be like a parody, a goof on Buddy Holly's Not Fade Away, and it's quite similar. But I I wanted to start it with, I'm going to tell you how it's going to be. You're going to give your vote to me. So I had to send it to Paul McCartney's company because he owned uh, Not Fade Away, he owned Buddy Holly's catalog. And they absolutely refused to let me do it because Paul McCartney does not support a political party. And I go, they're, not, they're, they're like a pretend political party. So I had to change it, which I did, Not you know, and then it was OK with them. And then uh, I ended up playing for the Monster Raving Looney Party conferences for like the last 10 years. <laughs>
3: Mean Lord Such, Howling Lord Hope, TC Banana Rowan, Baron Thong Thunderclad, Nigel Nye, The Incredible Flying Brick, Captain Chaplain Smile, Jersey Flyer, Harry Norman, Johnny Disco, Mad Mike York, Are You Serious? Baron Badger, Mad Hatter, Shinners, George Rogers, Dudley the Greens, Big Ben Beats, Good night to Nostar, iconic Arnie Paul, Farming in law David and a course, baby cake uh-oh. we got just the thing for you. We can make your dreams come true. We're going to vote to number 10 and make red pretty fun again. Vote 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 Vote
1: Vote! So our final track, Joe, invite me home from your most recent EP.
2: Yeah, the original was done in Chicago and mixed on the day of 9-11. So we all of those songs from Till the End of Time uh, album, the Invite Me Home EP, and the future Hometown Heroes album all were done at the same time. It took a while. And I used all uh, local musicians, and they're all world-class people. And um, you can feel that electricity in there once you know the story. And I was so proud of that material. I wanted to do something with it sooner or later, brought all those tapes with me to England, finished them off here in my house here with a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Giving it to Benny King to uh, to remix, and then it turns out to be two and a half albums worth of material, and it was written by a partner of mine named Marty Trelak, T R L A K, and he came to me with like like a folky type of uh, Bob Dylan type material. So there's a lot of if you, if you can you can hear it in the EP. So that's a third album, a fourth album to come once Peter Buer gets his hands on it. But in the meantime, there's this uh, this EP which I'm very proud of called invite me home
1: it's been a real pleasure to talk to you joe uh, thank you again
2: well thank you jason and and if i may say if i may suggest anybody wants to know anything about anything any backstory they just have to go to jojammer.com. all the gigs are listed there
1: fantastic perfect way to close
2: thank you jason god bless you i'll see you somewhere sometime down the road Pleasure,
3: man You'll get it just like you should